Welcome to By Design with Lynn and Danette. We are thrilled you're here. I'm Lynn. And I'm Danette. And our hope is that this is a space where you'll find encouragement for your home and your soul. We have real conversations about God, interior design, and all the things we love. Our desire is to encourage women to run their race, to keep their eyes on Jesus, and somehow we offer up a little bit of design advice in between. And don't forget to check out our website, bydesignpodcast.com. You'll find links there to all the shows, um, everything we talk about, pictures, all kinds of inspiration. You can follow us there on Instagram, Facebook, and now Pinterest. Uh, You can even listen to our show right there on our site and subscribe. So if you don't know how to subscribe on iTunes or your Android phone, if you just go to our website, there's a link there that will help you do that. Because you don't want to miss this. Yeah, this is really good today. And this is one you're going to want to like share with your friends, you know, like you're going to want to send it to your mom and to your sister and your aunts and, you know, anyone because this woman just breathed life into my weary sails today. Mm-hmm. Kay yep. Warren is on our little podcast. She is just such a relatable mm-hmm. woman. Like she's wonderful. Yeah, she's very transparent and oh. just willing to share um some of the things that she struggled with. And boy, that woman has been through a lot, but God has used her. Yeah. So yeah, if you don't know who Kay Warren is, um, she co-founded Saddleback Church with her husband, Rick Warren in Lake Forest, California. Uh, She's a passionate Bible teacher and tireless advocate for um, people that are living with mental illness, HIV and AIDS, and also for the orphaned and vulnerable children left behind. Kay is the author of Choose Joy Because Happiness Isn't Enough and Say Yes to God. She's co-author of Foundations, the popular systematic theology course used by churches worldwide. Her children are Amy and Josh and Matthew, who is in heaven. And she has five grandchildren, Kaylee, Cassidy, Caleb, Cole, and Claire, which how adorable are those names? I know. But you can learn more um, about her at www.kwarren.com. And we'll have all the links that we talk about with her. She mentioned some great books and stuff. It'll all be on our website so Mm -hmm. you don't have to be like scrambling to write it all down while you're driving right and her new book called sacred privilege is out today right it's out today and Mm -hmm. this book go and get it she's totally transparent about the struggles Mm -hmm. she's had as a pastor's wife and it's kind of written for pastor's wives to encourage them and how to how to live well Mm -hmm. in the fishbowl that you're kind of in Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. yeah and i think it's even helpful for people like myself who are not pastor's wives um just Maybe to get a little bit more understanding of what it is like and to help support and come alongside Absolutely. the leaders in our church and their wives. So enjoy. We're just so thrilled to have you on our little podcast. Thank you so much for making time for us today. Oh, absolutely. I'm thrilled to be asked. Thank you. Oh, my goodness. I have got to tell you, I have just loved um, following your and your husband's ministry. Um, I'm a pastor's wife myself. My husband's a worship leader. Um, and it's just been such an encouraging, uh, an encouraging place to watch the way you guys serve and love. And so thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Okay. So anyone who's listening, you need to go and check out Kay Warren. So Kay, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself and your amazing ministry and your life that's brought you to this point? I grew up in a pastor's home. My, my dad was a pastor. Um, Rick's dad was a pastor. When I met Rick, he was studying for the ministry. And so I knew what I was getting into in many ways um, when I married him. Um, I didn't know that he was going to be a church planter. I thought that we would just do traditional churches like my dad had done and his dad had done. You know, I just, I didn't know. And um, so there were, there were some things that were known about being in ministry. And then there've been some things that have been a complete and total surprise. Um, but I, I have loved almost every second of, uh, <laughs> I love being, your honest uh, answer. <laughs> yeah. There have been some not so great moments and probably, um, I don't know, maybe in the middle years when I was, uh, right in the midst of raising my kids, right. um, that it felt many times like the ministry was going to kill me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the demands of my, on my time and my life and, and people's expectations and navigating that negotiating as the church was changing, how my role would change. It just, it just got a little hairy. Right. And, um, but I think at this vantage point of having been in ministry for, um, you know, nearly 42 years, um, I've just settled into, as I take this backward look of, you know, overall, it has been a sacred privilege. It uh, really, really has. Yeah. So it's it's such an honest and raw look, this book. Um, 
of being a pastor's wife. So why why was it important to you to give readers such a a candid look into your life? I think that we are we're helped and we're encouraged more by people's weaknesses and mm. seeing how they overcome them mm. and how how they have to be dependent upon the Lord. I think we're helped more by that than we are by seeing each other's strengths. Mm. Um, I don't know. I it's it's sometimes intimidating to me when I listen to um, speakers or I read their books and and I feel like they've just kind of gone from you know one place of one mountaintop to the right. next mountain to the next mm. mountaintop and and I look at my life and I'm like hanging around in the valleys a lot and mm-hmm. doing my best to climb up these gigantic mountains of uh, life challenges and ministry challenges and when I hear somebody tell me you know what yeah, I've had to climb some mountains and I've had to work through my doubts about God and I've had to trust him um, when there was, it, it felt like absolutely no reason you know, to trust him, but I do. When I hear those stories, mm-hmm. I'm encouraged to think, you know what? I can do this. I can mm-hmm. do this too. Um, I'm not like her with all of her strengths. I'm I'm this person who has to really depend on Jesus. And mm-hmm. if that girl has to do it that way, then I can too. So mm-hmm. it just felt important to not give this impression that I that I'm a perfect woman living a perfect life mm-hmm. because it's far from that. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love that. So how how did you handle some of those valleys? Like you've had you have had you know a very public. I feel like um, your husband and you both have had to deal with a lot of heartache and valleys in the public eye. So how have you handled that? We've tried to be honest um, to to say that it is hard to um, to let people in. Again, I think when people can see the process, often those who are in the public eye just tell our stories of struggle in the past. Right. You know, well, I used to I used to struggle with this, mm-hmm. or I used to have a problem with that. Um, my husband and I used to have marriage problems. Mm-hmm. You know, when we just talk about our past. And how we've overcome. Um, again, that that's not always encouraging. What is encouraging to me is to see people in the middle of the process, mm-hmm. to see people in the middle of the the mess and the struggle, and um, you know sometimes the bloody pulp that yeah. we become. Mm-hmm. We you know lie on the ground, and um, when I see the process and how somebody is taking it step by step. It encourages me. Yeah. And so Rick and I determined that along with the marriage problems that we've had through the years, the problems that we had with our son, um, his his problems with mental illness and how mm-hmm. that affected us, um, breast cancer, um, and then the severe mental illness of our son and, mm-hmm. and his suicide and the aftermath of that, it has just been important to us to let people walk with us through each particular step of the journey. Mm-hmm. Um, mostly because, um, like I said, it's it, there's only a certain amount of help that can come when um, you talk from your past victories. Mm-hmm. I want to know that today it's fresh. I want to know mm-hmm. that, you know, God says his mercies are new mm-hmm. every day. I want to talk to people who are having to access that mercy new every day. I want to talk to people for whom it's right now. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not yesterday. It's right. right now. This is where we're living. And this is how we're coping or this is how we're not coping. And, um, and here's where we need your help. And here's mm-hmm. where you can pray for us. And um, mm-hmm. that's what means a lot to me. So I, I figure there are other people who need the same thing. No, oh, absolutely. And that's such a living testimony, like for the right now. Uh, Lynn and I just record recorded a podcast on repentance and I was talking about um, a time of like a week of sin that I was struggling with just like recently. And I called Lynn that night. The, our podcast was going out the next day. And I was like crying because <laughs> I was embarrassed of my sin and, and to be talking about it. But it was, it's really hard to let people in to like your struggles right now. It's, it's so much easier to do the past tense thing. But I, there's freedom there when you're willing to... You know? There's extreme freedom, and I I think there's uh, actually a biblical basis for that. It's not just our touchy feely, you know, people that we are today and our culturally. I think I think the Bible is actually so brutally honest mm. about the characters. It just doesn't mm-hmm. sugarcoat the characters of the Bible. You truly see the giants of the faith with their weaknesses, with 
the places mm-hmm. where they stumbled and sinned, the places where they have doubts. I mean, you just, you can't, the only person that you don't see a sin is Jesus. And even mm-hmm. Jesus shows us his humanity when he weeps over um, people's brokenness, when he was in Gethsemane and he knew what was ahead of him and 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 he wept and, and pleaded with God mm-hmm. to, please, could there be another way? Um, and so when we look at the Bible characters, far from being these, um, you know, icons on paintings, they're, they were flesh and blood people with, who sweat and smelled and, and <laughs> burped and had, <laughs> with their spouses and, and betrayed yeah. their spouses and yeah. um, hurt their children and, and made bad decisions, um, doubted mm-hmm. God's goodness. That's who the Bible is yeah. full of. And those are the people that God says, these are my heroes. Because yeah. mm-hmm. they kept going. They kept trusting me even when they stumbled and fell. Mm-hmm. That's so encouraging for people like me. Oh, right. Nice. And I think for the rest of us too, who like aren't like pastor's wives, I'm, I'm not a pastor's wife, but yeah, I think we tend to put people we who are, you. yeah, thank you so much. But you're uh, from my view, we like tend to put you gals on pedestals, like that you're not struggling with the same sins as us. And you know, that you guys are supposed to be kind of perfect. And you know, we, sometimes I think our hopes are dashed. Um, when we find out someone's well, I, I can just tell you not sometimes they will be dashed. Mm-hmm. We we are pastors and pastors' wives and people in the ministry clergy are you know Paul says in Acts um, he says you know we're just humans we're merely humans like you those of you that want to treat us like God we're just humans just mm-hmm. like you and I think that's actually what sets up one of the most difficult uh, dynamics in ministry is when the people in the pew or the, you know, theater chairs, whatever, Mm -hmm. think that pastors and their families are perfect. And it sets up this uh, incredibly destructive and dysfunctional dynamic. So the people in the, in sitting in the chairs think that the people in ministry are perfect. And so the people in ministry don't want to let anybody down. Mm -hmm. Um, And so they try really hard to meet those expectations of perfection and, and actually there's a little bit of our ego that gets stroked along the way because who doesn't want to be thought of as being right. wonderful and magnificent and, mm-hmm. you know, we all, it strips a little bit of the sick ego in us, but it also sets up a dynamic for failure. Absolutely. Part of the clergy and disappointment and disillusionment mm-hmm. on the part of, of the congregants and a much healthier, a much more um, spiritually mature and holistic way to live is for, for the clergy to come in and say, you know what? We are merely humans just like you. We're not perfect. We don't have all the answers. Our kids aren't going to get it right every time. Mm-hmm. Um, there are days I'm not sure that, you know, I'm kind of knocking on heaven's door going, hello, hello, anybody in there? Mm-hmm. Uh, that we have these moments where the mysteries of life overwhelm us. Mm-hmm. They're not perfect. Mm-hmm. We'll lead you with our whole heart, but we're not perfect. And then to refuse to, to play that game to refuse to try to live on the teetering edge of a, of a pedestal that's too, way too narrow. Mm-hmm. Um, when we refuse to try to walk on water, you know, when we refuse to live in a very confining box of perfectionism, when we refuse to, to play that game, then it makes it harder for the um, people in the congregation to look at us through those eyes. And it breaks that cycle mm-hmm. of a dysfunctional uh, pattern between um, the pastor and and the church. Yeah, and and I think you know we're all sinners, and the pastor, the pastors' wives, the people in leadership, they all are going to fall. So, and we you know we say things like, "Well, we know, you know, we know that the pastors and and the leadership that they're sin, you know, because they're sinners." But like, what happens? What is going to happen when there really is um, a sin or a fall? Like, how are we going to come alongside and and actually? allow them to, you know, struggle well. Yeah. And the other part of that is how do they step down from that pedestal um, to show the church that they are just like everyone else? Like, it's one thing to say, like, we are just like you, but the pastors and the pastor's wives, they have to be inviting people into their real life, everyday sin. They have to invite people in to do real life with them. They can't just say it. So like, how do they do that? That's got to be a hard, hard bridge to jump. No, you hit the nail on the head. The Antidote, um, one of, a really good book for anybody in ministry is called The Walk on Water Syndrome by mm-hmm. Edwin Bratcher. 
I don't know that it's in print, but you know, lots of times yeah. you can find things, you know, online or in used bookstores or whatever, but the walk on water syndrome. And he says the only antidote to refusing to walking on water is to know and know hmm. is to have the relationships that you were just talking about, um, to, to have genuine relationships with people so that they get close enough to see your stuff. And Amen. that's uncomfortable. Most of us don't want anybody to see our stuff, whether you're in the ministry or not. You know, most of us don't really like being that honest about our, our weaknesses and limitations, but it's critically important for people in ministry to know and be known. And um, you don't have to know and be known by everybody. That's actually probably as big a risk and recipe <laughs> for disaster as, as being yeah. closed. But, but, you know, having some safe people in your life who, for whom you're not the pastor, you're just a person. And, um, and you can say, Hey, you know what? I'm really struggling right here. Or, you know what? There's, there's a big gap between my private life and my public life. Mm -hmm. And what I tell people is you are people in ministry, you are entitled to a private life. You're just not entitled to private sin. Yeah. And that's where we get mixed up. When we think, hey, I, I deserve this extra drink or I, it's, if I take, you know, these pills because it's going to help me get through this, that's okay. I'm having a hard time. Or if they, if we indulge our, um, you know, maybe marriage is under some stress at a particular moment and we think, you know what, if I watch this on TV or I download this on my computer or whatever, it's okay because you know what, I'm having a hard time right now and I need to, to soothe myself with this. Mm. Whenever we think private sin is mm. okay, um, the gap between who we are in public and who we are in private starts to grow. And knowing that we're never going to get those two to, to match completely because we are imperfect human beings in process. But if the gap ever gets too large, that's the time to kind of push the pause button on ministry and mm -hmm. to say, I need help and I need it now. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's just so good, Kay. I love hearing that. So um, having a more public, being more in the public eye with your family, like my husband and I and our kids, we're finding that right now we're a little bit more public than some of the other families. And what would you, what would you tell me my boys are 12, 10, and 8 right now? Um, like in supporting them as being ministry kids, you know, in this kind of yeah. fishbowl, you know, the expectations yeah. that people are putting on my kids that they didn't ask for that, you know, even though they're called alongside Kurt and I right now while they're here in the house, but it's just managing that. Yeah, yeah it is. And um, having grown up as a preacher's kid and then raising three preacher's kids, I, I can identify from both sides of, of that yeah. issue. And I do remember the times as a child that um, I was told, you can't do that. You're the preacher's kid. But I was also told, well, you have to do that. You're the preacher's kid. Right. And so there was the, you know, it was like, hmm. I, I, I couldn't, I couldn't win on, on either end of that spectrum because I either had to do something because, because of who I was, or there were things I couldn't do according to church members because of who I was. And I really appreciate, um, I, I, I felt the pressure of that. And, and in our family growing up, there really was, um, an emphasis on, you know, what will other people think? Um, make sure that you don't say or do anything that's going to cause a reflection, you know, badly mm -hmm. on, on mm -hmm. my dad or our church or mm -hmm. on Jesus. So for me, that became an extreme pressure that caused me to hide, um, in, in a lot of shame, um, when I was, um, attracted to pornography mm. after having been molested as a child, I didn't know what to do with any of that. And there was no way I was confessing that to anybody right. and I wasn't bringing anybody into my struggle. And because I know how hard that was when we were raising our kids, we, we tried to have a, a little bit different philosophy, which was we don't do anything that we do because of who mm, dad is, right. because hmm. of your dad being the pastor. That's not the standard for us. What's the standard for our lives and the way we live um, as our family is what is a believer in Jesus Christ? What's mm -hmm. required of us as a That's believer right. in Jesus Christ? So to separate it from the ministry, separate it from the job so that our kids didn't think, well, we're only doing this or not doing this because somebody will judge us um, for, for being in, you know, being in the ministry. And we, we just tried to reframe the whole conversation. Mm -hmm. um, 
And so I think, you know, and I talk about in sacred privilege, um, one of the most important lessons that you can convey to any child, but particularly those who live with those extra layers of pressure of, um, as you say, a fishbowl existence of, of clergy kids mm-hmm. is to let them know that mm-hmm. God loves them unconditionally, just as they mm-hmm. are, that he, that when he sees them, it brings the, the biggest smile of mm-hmm. pleasure and delight on his face. Um, and that, that our kids need to run to him when they're struggling, when they've messed up, when they have doubts rather than away from him. And the only way that our kids are going to know that about God is if that's the way that they've, they've experienced love with us, right. that we're the people that they run to when they're struggling, that right. we're the people they run to when they have doubts about God, that we're the people they run to when they've messed up rather than away from. And we set out to make that the prime lesson we instilled in our kids was by the way that we loved them that they could look at that and know, oh, that's how God right. loves me too. When that's the basic message that you, our kids are living with, then some of those extra pressures or expectations of other people don't mean, they don't have quite as much power. Right. Because our kids know, hey, you know what? Mm. I am dearly loved by God and he mm. accepts me. And, and even if I mess up, I don't have to run away from him. I'm going to run to him. Mm-hmm. And uh, and my parents have modeled that for me. Um, to me, that's just that's key. That's foundational in raising kids that are in the ministry. I agree with you. So I so agree with you on that. And even out of ministry, you know, as Christian parents, that's just mm-hmm. that's who we're called to be. And I love that. So tell, can you tell us a little bit about your journey of understanding what it means to be a team with Rick, like to come alongside him? Like I know that can be time constraining. I'm sure he's wanted in lots of different ways and um, just serving along with him and then finding that time to be like husband and wife and mom and dad and all of it. Yeah, all of that. Um, Well, for us, Rick and I are so different. Uh, You know, it's even hard to talk about him or our marriage without just starting with those words. We are so different. (laughs) Amen. That's a good thing. Always been different, and um, you know we've been married. Uh, June will be forty-two years Aww. that we've been married. We jokingly say, uh, you know, thirty-five of them happily. Um, <laughs> oh, I be- love it because especially those early years were very yeah. difficult um, for us. We're, we are so different. We didn't really know each other very well. It's almost like we had an arranged marriage. <laughs> in that we did, we did go through the normal seasons of life that so many couples do. And we just, when we got married, we were virtual strangers and had to work out all the things that you're supposed to work out before you get oh, married. Wow. You know, we started from, you know, zero <laughs> and he was confident. He was already a successful young youth evangelist. He'd preached all over um, California and he was confident. He was popular in school. He um, very driven, um, extroverted and you know, and I saw myself at the time as being uh, very shy and lacking in confidence, feeling inadequate about who I was and not quite sure how I ended up with this, you know, extroverted Tigger when I was a very introverted Eeyore. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I love Winnie the Pooh, by the way. <laughs> I love Winnie the Pooh. I just think that those are the best way to describe personalities. I agree. Uh, yeah, so we didn't start ministry feeling very much like a team. Mm. He was proud of me and saw gifts in myself that I did not see um, in myself. So I, I pretty much stayed in the shadows. Um, I mean, we started the church together. We co-founded Saddleback, but we just sort of split the job in half. You know, he did the preaching, teaching, the marrying, the burying, the baptizing. <laughs> I did. I was the church secretary. I was yeah. the church pianist. I was in wow. charge of the nursery. I, uh, you know, I was the one who kept track of where people were and where they were going, where they were coming from. You know, I, right. I just did the detail person. I made sure the coffee pot got plugged in on Sunday mornings and um, we just kind of split the job. Um, so we were definitely a team, but it took a few years of growing into my role for me to discover that God had also given me gifts um, that were unique to me and that God had shaped me. Um, for a reason, and that he'd shaped me as an, I saw myself as very 
average and ordinary and saw Rick as the superstar mm-hmm. and um, you know, had several pivotal moments in which God brought it clear to me that, Kay, I chose to make you average and ordinary and I take delight in you mm-hmm. as average and ordinary. And when you give me the little that you think you have, I will take it and multiply it and feed thousands with it. But you have to trust me to even take your little. You have to stop hiding it, stop burying it, stop being afraid to to put it out there. Give it to me and then let me be in charge of what I do throughout your life. And when I did that, it, it changed my life completely. Uh, it gave me a whole new perspective on who I was, who I wasn't. And I have just lived these 37 years at Saddleback continually offering to him what I consider to be my little mm. and then finding him to be the God who breaks that and multiplies it and feeds um, others with it. So being a team has been something we've grown into as um, now we, you know, are, I feel like we're this pretty smooth running machine. That's great. Um, as a team. He has the gifts that he has. I have the gifts that I have. We work together for the same purpose, for the growth of God's kingdom, for the growth of our church. Um, we have, we've done it all together, but it really has been a process. Oh, I love that because I feel like I, in only in the last few years, have been able to kind of come to that place of realizing that it wasn't just Kurt, that my husband Kurt that was called, that I was called all alongside him and figuring that out and... Uh, exactly. Like, what's my role in this ministry with you? Because my skill set's very different than yours. <laughs> Teach at Saddleback something called shape, um, hmm. which, uh, and we say that ev- this is for every believer. It's not just for those in ministry, but that God has given everyone a unique shape, which hmm. is spiritual gift, um, heart, or your passion. You know, what is it that right. you're passionate about? He's given each person um abilities, you know, just natural born abilities. He's given each of us a unique personality and he's given us all um, unique life experiences. And when you put all of that together, your spiritual gift, your heart, your abilities, your personality and your experiences, it's, it's like a, it's like the key to a treasure map because suddenly you go, that's who you made me to be. Yes. That made me to be. He, you give, you gave him those spiritual gifts that heart, those abilities, that personality, those life experiences. And here are the ones that you've given to me. And as we see how they come together to um, to build the body of Christ, each of us is using our own shape, but but we're using it in such a way that is is feels good to me. Right. And it feels good to him. I don't have to be him and he right. doesn't have to be me. I, I am uniquely shaped. And so I that's one of the things I love to share with um, uh, women in ministry is, you know what? God has made you in a certain way. And and that's the lane you're to run in because it fits your spiritual gifts. It fits your heart. It fits your ability, your personality, your life experiences. It gives a lot of freedom oh. because you don't think like you've got to be somebody else. You you really recognize you've been uniquely shaped. Amen. I love that. So you have been starting, I, I was reading a little bit online about Hope Rising. So, oh yeah! Oh, can we talk about that? Because I got so excited, girl. I got so excited because I I struggle with depression, and it's hilarious. Mm-hmm. And I was reading a little bit about your story because there has been sexual abuse in my past that, um, you know, it triggered into anorexia, and I've had all these, you know, burying my sin, not wanting anyone to see for so long, and then I broke, and then I was a pastor's wife, and pastors' wives don't break, so it's like all of this is like culminated, and now you know I'm kind of working into my role, and I'm able to meet with some amazing women that struggle also and come alongside them, and I just when I read about Hope Rising and what you're doing there, I just got so excited. Well, me too. It's and it's experiment. We've never done it before, and and I don't really know that anybody else has. Maybe they have. And if they have, I'd love to hear about it because I want to learn from them. But um, on May 19th, we are hosting an event called Hope Rising. And it is specifically for, by, and through people living with mental illness. So the people from MC to the a worship leader, to a speaker, to a workshop leader, to um, anybody participating in this day is saying, I'm living with a mental illness. 
And I, I, I saw in my mind pretty soon after Matthew died, it, just this comforting thought from God, sort of this vision. And I, I'm not somebody who gets vision. So it's, you know, <laughs> it was a very rare occurrence, but I just, I felt like it was a sweet comfort from the, from God. I had this vision of our, of our worship center at Saddleback just being filled with people living with mental illness. And some were crying, some were laughing, some were praying, some were saying for the first time, you know, hey, I'm living with depression or I'm living with borderline personality disorder or I have bipolar two or, you know, or I I have schizophrenia or I have an eating disorder or, um, you know, or anxiety um, is something I've always struggled. I just felt like it was a place where people in the church could come and say, um, I, this is who I am and this is an illness that I have and I'm not ashamed of it, that people would have their heads held high. Um, nobody had to whisper, you know, mm. anything uh, about their lives. For me, um, it probably sprang from the fact that I've been an advocate for people living with HIV and AIDS for over a decade. And and sadly, I got mm. used to people whispering in my ear, um, particularly in other countries, I, I have AIDS or mm. I'm HIV positive. And they were whispering it to me because of stigma. Right. Yeah. And so I wasn't prepared when I started talking about mental illness and suicide prevention. I wasn't prepared for people to start whispering in my ear those things. I have anorexia mm. or mm. I, I have bipolar 2 or I, I have depression. And they were whispering it for that same reason. Stigma. Um, the fact that they might not be accepted, it might affect their jobs, it could affect their relationships. And hmm. I just, it sort of, it mean, of course, it made me very upset. It was this, it was this idea of no, nobody should have to whisper anything about their lives in church. Oh, church is one place. If mm-hmm. there's nowhere else on the planet, church should be the one place where yes. you don't have to whisper Amen. anything mm-hmm. about yeah. your life. And so hope. Rising is a day for people who are living with mental illness to to come to to be with others who also know what it's like on that journey, and to um, to be encouraged by others who are going to tell stories of hope, um, tell stories of of struggle. But at the end of the day, um, hopefully, when people leave, their own hope will be rising. Amen. That that God is with me, God is for me. I have brothers and sisters around me, and God has a purpose for my life, and He will use um, even this painful illness um, to to live out my purpose and to bring glory to Himself. That's that's what we want. Oh, mm-hmm. that's just so. I can't wait. I wish I could come. <laughs> <laughs> can Can I buy a ticket? <laughs> you could work that out. <laughs> no, I just love that because there's there is such a stigma with mental illness, and if anybody had like diabetes or a heart condition or anything, you know, you would go and you have support groups and you can gather together and you can help each other. Casserole, mm-hmm. you know, if you got diagnosed with if you with diabetes or heart disease or cancer. People would line up to to try to help you and try yeah. to take care of you and meet your needs and support you. And um, Amy Simpson, a good friend of mine, calls mental illness the no casserole illness. That uh, is awesome. And, and, and in an awful way, but <laughs> yeah, but you get it. Yeah. And how cool will it be when someday in church, when somebody says, I got a diagnosis this week and I don't even know what to do with right. it. I don't even know what all it means. And somebody says, hey, can I drive you to your doctor appointment? Can I can I bring you dinner tomorrow night? Mm-hmm. Can I can I take your kids for the afternoon? Do you need just a little bit of time off? How cool will it be mm-hmm. when we support each other um, with mental illness the same way we do, as you say, diabetes, cancer, right. heart disease, mm-hmm. yeah. bladder disease? Yeah. <laughs> right. No, and I I just think that's so great. And it's funny when you get to the point when you can look at these things that we do carry the crosses that we have to bear or whatever it is, but that it is a way that I'm thankful for it now because I'm able to talk to women that mm-hmm. I normally wouldn't be able to talk to. It's an automatic equalizer, you know, mm-hmm. it's a just, well, you're not, a, it means that you're not a stranger to pain mm-hmm. and, and everybody needs to know that somebody else gets their pain or that somebody else has walked down um, a, a path that wasn't always rosy and easy and challenge free. Um, again, people are helped more by our weaknesses mm-hmm. than they are our strength. Early in the church, um, I was uh, talking to a man that I didn't know very well, and we were 
um, at some church function. And he, he just was like, you know, trying to get to know me. And he said, so, you know, tell me about your family. Do you have any siblings? And I said, I, I, you know, I have a brother. And he said, is he following Christ? And I said, well, not at the moment. Actually, he's a, he's a heroin addict and has mm-hmm. been in and out of jail and it's broken my parents' hearts and it's just really difficult. And he immediately said, that's great. <laughs> and I, my thought was, you know, what a jerk. What do you, what do you mean that's great? I'm telling you this heartbreaking situation and you're telling me it's great. And he said, oh, no, no, no. He goes, what I mean is that I, it makes me feel like my family isn't so weird. Mm-hmm. That it's so great to know that your family also has struggles and that you know what it's like to hurt. Mm-hmm. He said, it makes me have hope for my family. Yeah, it, It's ironic too, that the things that we want to hide are the very things God can use mm-hmm. to give us a ministry, you know, through the suffering. So crazy. Um, there's a quote by Lena Abujama. Is that how you say it, Lynn? Do you know her name? I, I don't know. Okay. <laughs> there's this like lady that I love. She's from Chicago. And she says that people with wounds listen to people with scars. And it's so uh-huh. true. If, if we would just be more willing to share our brokenness and our hurts. and You, you know, love it. You find out who said that and you send that to me. I will. I have her name. I just can't pronounce it. <laughs> A great quote. It's yeah. It's exactly I'll send it for sure. Would you tell us a little bit about your son Matthew and that story? I I just there's, you know, I feel like so sure. many people, even in our community here, there there have been um, children that have killed themselves, and that I know that um, it's not not talked about, and sure. you know, we all need to hear these stories. I appreciate you asking the question, um, Matthew. Um, he was clini- di- diagnosed with clinical depression when he was seven. And he probably would have been diagnosed sooner if we mm-hmm. had understood that children can be mentally ill. Yeah. Children can be, how would you know? Um, like, I feel like we have like the autism spectrum that, you know what I mean? That is more um, talked about. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, and we think Matthew was probably ill from the time he was, you know, three or four. Wow. Um, and in fact, pediatric, um, psychiatric hospitals that have a pediatric unit, um, the one that they're building here in Orange County, will start at age three, will be for children age three to 12, That's because crazy. definitely children um, can can have a mental illness. Um, well, I had two other kids and that were older than Matthew, and he wasn't like them, but I just kept thinking he would grow out of it, that some of the behaviors that he exhibited were, um, you know, they, they were just, he was different. And, right. and he would grow out of it. And um, it, it never occurred to me that mental illness might hmm. be the basis for, um, for his reactions. He, he had a, it's different for every child, but for him, he had a very negative mood from the time hmm. he was a baby. Um, he, you know, as a two-year-old, we were playing Candyland and, and um, shoots and ladders. If he lost, he couldn't, he didn't just cry. He threw the board and was angry and cried for hours. I had to stop playing mm. those games with him because when he lost, he couldn't control his oh responses. Um, and I was afraid, you know, at four that he was going to be kicked out of preschool uh, just because he had gotten a little aggressive at that point. He was so difficult to manage. Um, any th- he, was, uh, he couldn't stand to have any of his clothes wet. You know, mm. I, I remember I, mm. I literally have a photograph of him in a children's choir when he was four at Saddleback and they were singing at a um, some event and um, somehow some water spilled on his pants and he couldn't bear it. And mm. so he was holding, pulled up his pant leg and is holding his pant leg away from his body. So he's bent mm. over, holding up his pant leg, crying as he's singing. You know, that's that's just yeah. not normal. You know, yeah. that's that's the, the, um, what for children, but it never occurred to us that, you know, it was mental illness. And when he was seven and he came home from school and just started talking about how he was feeling sad hmm. and, um, he lost interest. These are some of the signs when children lose interest in school, when they lose interest in the things that they've enjoyed, when hmm. they lose interest in playing, when they hmm. use words like sad, hmm. um, and children usually don't know what words to use. Um, but if that behavior continues over, uh, you know, a month, a month and a half, um, period of time, 
then then you need to start looking into something is going on. It may or may not be mental illness. It could be something right. that's physically going on. There could, you know, so don't automatically jump to <laughs> right. oh, my child is mentally ill. <laughs> you as a parent need to pay attention. Yes. Because when children change, when their behavior changes, when their interests change, when they um and they can go the other direction. They either sleep too much or they sleep too little. Mm-hmm. Um when they eat too much or they eat too little. I mean, you know, there's so many things. Of, it's like it's watching for behavior change that continues over a period of time. That's okay. when you need to start paying attention. And have, and go right, you know, go to your doctor. Have them, have yep. them checked out. Doctors know, pediatricians know how to do depression screenings. They know how to do those kind of things for kids. So Matthew struggled for most of his life. And as he got to be an adult, um, you know, when he was younger, we made sure he took his medication. We made sure he was at therapy. We made sure he was, um, you know, we, we just had more control. And then right. when he was, he was 18 and no longer did we have that same kind of control, his adult mm-hmm. life then became um, pretty torturous because by then he was struggling with suicidal ideation and talked mm-hmm. about it, thought about it constantly, began to make some attempts. Um, there were hospitalizations. There were his, his, it just, it just, his life just became a, a torment, but he was so sweet. He was kind. He loved people. He, um, was always spotted the other people who were struggling. Um, mm. but he eventually just hit that place of, of hopelessness where he didn't really want to die, but he just wanted the pain to stop. And on, you know, April 5th, uh, 2013, um, I mean, I'll know more when I get to heaven, when I oh. see him, but from what I know from a human standpoint is um, um, it all became overwhelming and he saw no way out, he saw no future for himself and he, and he oh. took his life. And, um, you know, the worst day of my life has happened. Yeah. It, it is behind Nothing else can ever be as bad as losing my child to right. suicide. And it's just, but we have, we have um, grieved together, mm. Rick and I. We are actually closer than we've ever been before as we, um, ne- nobody else in the world knows what it's like to be the parent of mm-hmm. Matthew besides me and him. That's and so right. we have, other, we have clung to God. Um, I'm learning to live with mystery, the many unanswered questions that, that will never be answered here on earth. I'll, mm-hmm. I'll never know why God didn't heal him. I, I felt sure God would, and, and that's not what happened. Mm-hmm. A lot of unanswered questions, but I've come to believe that an untested faith um, is not worth very much. And um, mm-hmm. tragedy and loss has tested our faith. We have found our anchor to hold. God is sure. God is good. I trust him. And I know that Matthew is in his arms. Mm-hmm. And East means more to me than it ever has oh. before. Jesus is alive. Amen. And if Jesus is then Matthew is alive. And if Jesus is alive and Matthew is alive, that means when I leave this earth, I too will live again. Amen. And my my hope is in the fact that Jesus is the resurrection Amen. and the life. Amen, girl. I love that. I've just loved um, watching and being encouraged and being challenged by watching you and Rick um, grieve and love openly and, too. Right? Yeah. Oh, doing it also openly with such grace, keeping Jesus in the center of it and, um, encouraging others as, as they struggle and have had to deal with an unimaginable loss like that. I can't imagine that is mm-hmm. a mother's as a parent's worse. It is. Yeah. I, it is. well, thank you for sharing that yeah. with us. And, and what a, just like the brokenness of sin and, how the depths of it in our in our minds and our souls, you know, it's by the grace of God that I'm not thinking that way, you know, mm-hmm. like it. Well, it is an illness, you yeah. know, it is an, it is an illness. Um, suicidal. They find about ninety percent of the people who take their lives were also uh, living with a mental illness, and mm-hmm. so um, it's um, uh, the good part of it is that uh, there is hope here. There's always hope here. There are great people waiting to help. Um, oftentimes people uh, hit that moment of that there's not going to be any, nothing's ever going to be any different. And suicide is such a permanent solution to a mm-hmm. temporary um, experience. And um, so we we really work hard to dispel the stigma around suicide mm-hmm. and to um, have deep compassion 
for people. Often we talk about people who take their lives as being cowards. Mm. I'm sorry. I I think it's the exact opposite. I Mm. think only if you have lived with a crushing weight of depression um, and hopelessness can you know how much courage it takes to get up one more day Mm. and try Mm. more day. And I think when we get to heaven Mm -hmm. that we'll find some of the most courageous people um, Mm. who are given um, God's highest honors are the people who fought every single day mm-hmm. to uh, to live and to live with hope um, mm-hmm. against everything in their body right. and their minds that pushed them in the complete opposite direction. Oh, well, yeah. especially in the church, I feel like there's such a stigma with with there suicide is. and people taking their lives in the church that even depression. And yeah, whole... no one wants to talk about it. And if and if you do talk about it, it's like a. I, I remember being taught very wrongly that you know you wouldn't go to heaven. Yeah, if, me too. Do you know what I mean? And yeah. nothing separates us from the love of Christ. So nothing. nothing separates us. John, not only, you know, Romans 8 that you just quoted, but John 10, Jesus, where he says, you know, my father, my sheep know my father's voice and know my voice and they're in my, God has put them in my hands and nothing, mm-hmm. nothing, no man can take them out of my hand. And if you have, if anyone has accepted Jesus Christ as their savior, you are secure. Amen. You can't even take yourself out of his hands. Mm-hmm. And and that's the confidence. And I love being able to tell people who are terrified that their loved one is, mm-hmm. is now in hell. And I can say if they knew Jesus Christ, they knew Jesus Christ, then they could not even take themselves out of God's hands. Billy Graham, I guess it was his wife, uh, Ruth, who said, someone asked her about suicide. And I think the quote is something like, um, God may not have called him home, but he certainly welcomed him. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. That's a beautiful picture, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Because God does not God does not lead us, you know, to take our lives. There's absolutely not. But God mm-hmm. has great compassion and mercy yeah. for our human frailty, our broken bodies, our yeah. broken minds. And um yeah. our, our our salvation is secure whether we're doubting God or angry at God or um or massively depressed, you know? Yeah. That's Mm-hmm. It's Jesus. It's about Jesus' finished work, mm-hmm. not about my broken body or mind. It's so crazy to me. You, you you touched on this earlier, just how you know our our minds, our brains. It it's a disease. It you know how we think sin can affect our or other organs of our bodies, and that you know we're going to suffer, and you know people get cancer, yeah. and we know that's all a result of you know sin. But sin yeah, entering the world. Yes. Yeah, but our brains are affected too, you know, they're, they're an organ. It's Yeah. So like, so why can't we accept that people do suffer, suffer from depression and it's not that they haven't prayed enough. It's not that they're not trusting right. God. Like there's an illness, you know, it, that's right. I think of myself, like after I had um, my first child and, you know, I had never s- struggled with depression ever. And I came from a more judgmental view on it, just how I was, ri- you know, the first church I went to when I was saved and all that kind of stuff. It was the same kind of thinking that, you don't take medication, you just go to God and you know, whatever right. it's, you're weak if you need the medicine. Right. But like, right. I came to a point that the darkness and the depths of that I was stuck in, never having been there before, it, I could not crawl out of it. It was dark is all I can say. And it took, I was so proud. I was so scared to ask for help, to go to my doctor and and even mention that I was having these scary thoughts you know as a mom <laughs> like seriously it it was twisted but i knew that well, that wasn't myself is real mm-hmm. it's real it's not an imagination i'm so glad you went to your doctor mm-hmm. i'm i'm so glad that you recognized that it was that something wasn't right that it was beyond um just you know baby blues mm-hmm, you know right. that it that it something more serious than that yeah. we i mean it um Postpartum depression can be lethal. I, I uh, just a mm-hmm. few months ago, a young mom in our church um, took the life of her baby and herself oh, uh, with um, with that severe postpartum psych- psychosis. Yeah. So, you know, I would encourage any woman who is is feeling um, you know depressed um, and low, or or even not, yeah, just don't 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 let it sit there. It, you know, absolutely, talk to your doctor. Mm-hmm talk to your doctor about it. Okay. I I would just love to talk to you forever. You have <laughs> such a wealth of knowledge and wisdom and grace about you. So I thank you. I feel like I could talk forever. <laughs> 
but we won't. Well, let's talk. <laughs> we value your time. So, um, that being said, you, you know, we were talking about the church should be a place of sanctuary. Um, and where this is, we love design and our homes and everything, but how do you create that space of refuge and um, safety in your home? Well, we, I think the more visible our lives have become over the years, the more we have needed our home to be um, exactly that, a place of safety, of sanctuary, of, of quietness. Um, so I keep our home pretty simple, um, mostly just because that's more restful to mm-hmm. us. Um, I mean, I like all the, you know, all the Pinterest stuff where every square <laughs> inch of your house can be, you know, decorated with something. I mean, I I like that, but I don't like it in my home. Right. In our home, I like, so we live in Southern California. We're both native Californians and we're proud to be Californians. (laughs) And California has a really rich history of being settled by Spaniards and Mm -hmm. um, belonging to Mexico at one point. So there's a really strong Spanish, Byzantine, um, Mexican influence. And so we've adopted that in our home. And so uh, we have a lot of iron. Uh, heavy, um, rounded uh, doorways, uh, rounded windows. Um, so heavy on on uh, sorry, white walls with the heavy beams and round. Oh, I rounded love that iron um, iron staircase. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, I have a fourteen foot uh, dining room table. A few years ago, we got rid of our living room. Because we have a, had a living room and a family room, and the living room was hardly ever used. And it was just taking up space, and I and all of my family lives here, and there just was never enough room in the dining room to have everybody, you know. Um, and so we were always putting up card tables and, you know, just making do. But um, we decided to get rid of our living room, and um, so I have now have a fourteen foot table in my. You walk in and see this gigantic mm-hmm. table. Oh, I love um, that so much. You and, built a longer yeah, table. Then, I love that. So we can fit everybody around the table. Oh. And um, that's where we actually live, you know, is mm-hmm. either around the table or um, in in our family room now that, that looks out. We live uh, near a canyon. And um, so we have the incredible honor. I, and I do consider it an honor because beauty is so restorative to my soul. I have mm-hmm. an honor of living uh, just in this near this canyon where I can, oh. when I stare outside, I'm looking at wildness. Oh, that's and, good for your soul, I'm sure. It's good for our soul. It's good for us to pull away from yeah. the visible light. People are analyzing what's in my grocery cart when I go to the grocery store. <laughs> oh, you know, that would be to, to have to have a place that's private in mm-hmm. our hacienda. Oh, I love Little it. In a, in a, in a, tracked home, you know, section in here near the church. That's so great. I love that. Oh, it sounds just like a magical place for you and your family to just be. I love it. It is. We love it too. That's so great. Okay. So Kay Warren's new book, uh, Sacred Privilege is out today. So make sure, make sure you go and you buy this book and um, gift it to a pastor's wife that you know, or, you know, somebody in ministry and, or read it to get a better perspective of what your pastor's wife is going through, I think. Mm. And just to be able to pray for each other and hear a little bit of Kay's story and be encouraged. So make sure you go get sacred privilege. I cannot wait. Thank you, Kay. Thanks, you guys. It's good to be with you. 